And so this morning I get to preach to you on Genesis chapter 1. And I'm so excited. Because <laughs> um, for as long as I can remember, I have just loved this chapter. I think I've read it and thought about it and studied it more than any other part of the Bible. Um, it's one of a short list of Old Testament chapters that I've read all the way through in the Hebrew and translated. Um, but never in my life have I preached or taught on Genesis 1. <laughs> And today I get to. Bring it, preacher. Um, so I feel a bit like a kid in a candy store. Um, but what an amazing candy store it is. Um, Genesis 1 is like a candy store with an upstairs and a basement and hundreds of little hidden away places and an entire room that's just for jelly bellies. Um, so I feel like a, a bit like a kid in a candy store who's only got 25 cents. Um, and you've really got to make it count. Um, so what I want to do today is just to stay on the main level of the store and pick out a few of the best things. And what I hope to do is to whet your appetite enough to keep coming back for many visits back. Um, so for our study in Genesis 1 this morning, I've printed out the chapter. You should have found that in your um, service leaflets. Um, and, and the idea of that is that you can take a pen or a pencil and make notes and um, Maybe uh, jot down anything you want to talk about further or go back and study later. Um, and uh, this can be the start of many good conversations. So um, you can follow along in those, on, uh, those sheets or on page one of your Pew Bibles. And so what I want to do this morning uh, is first of all look at this passage. Look at the text. Observe it. Um, so to empty our minds of any theories or ideas or prejudices that we brought with us children's storybooks and the like, um, and just look at these words and let them speak for themselves. Uh, then once we've really listened and heard what this chapter is saying, then we'll think about how we should interpret it, and finally how we should apply it to our daily lives. So that's the procedure. Um, first we're going to observe, what do we observe when we read Genesis 1? It starts with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it's about the creation of the world, about origins, about where we came from. And we see right at the outset in verse 2 that there were three problems. They're called formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. So verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void. Tohu vavohu. Dun, dun, dun. That's a joke from last week. Um, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And these three words for formlessness, emptiness, and darkness are all strongly negative words. They're never used positively in the Hebrew Bible. These are three big problems. So there's nothing to be celebrated in this picture in verse 2. It's not glorious. It's not good. It's not what God has in mind. It's chaos. No boundaries, no seasons, no structure at all. Just a big, shapeless nothing. Um, so we usually think of chaos as being very noisy and very messy, right? So like having a household of teenage boys, that's chaos. Um, but actually, that's only the process of chaos, of order becoming unraveled as every item in every cupboard and shelf is spilled out onto the floor. But the final destination of chaos isn't noisy or busy. It's dark and silent. 
So uh, maybe you've been in the middle of the ocean at night, maybe on a cruise ship or on a fishing boat, and you've looked out as far as you can see in every direction, and as far as you can see in every direction, you can only see water. It's a bit of an eerie feeling. Uh, well, imagine that sight, and now delete the boat, so you float up to hover over the water next to the Holy Spirit. Now delete all the land on the planet, so the whole ball is nothing but water. Now delete the moon and the stars, so it's pitch dark. Now delete the atmosphere, so there's no wind. And now make the vast dark ocean below you absolutely still. So there's not a wave or a ripple and nothing moving in it as far and as deep as you can imagine. Hmm. And that's very eerie, right? <laughs> that, uh, that, that idea gives me the creeps. Um, <laughs> but actually, that's what the earth is like in verse 2. Formless, empty and dark. It's chaos. So um, God sets to work to turn that awful, empty water world into a paradise. And he does it in six stages, six days. We can see that the rest of chapter one takes great care to delineate the days. The tool of repetition is used to great effect. So all six days begin with the words, and God said. So it will be helpful to mark those on your page. Um, and God said, you see it in verse three, in verse six, in verse nine, in verse 14, in verse 20 and in verse 24. So those are the beginnings of the six days. Now somebody shouted out that it's also in 11, that's true. So the third and sixth days have a second wave of and God said, which you can also mark down, but um, let's keep the days distinct. Um, so every day begins with the phrase and God said, and every day ends with the phrase and there was evening and there was morning. So for example, verse five says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And the effect of this repetition is to establish a kind of drumbeat in the text, a kind of rhythm, like a piece of music. There's a structure built right into the words. And as the music goes on, it builds, it gets bigger, right? So the first day has the shortest description, and the sixth day has by far the longest. The music is getting louder. More instruments are coming in with bigger and brighter themes. So I want to trace for you some of the themes that are in this chapter. The actions of God of separating, naming, blessing, commanding, and calling things good. Let's trace those through the six days. On the first day, in verses 4 and 5, God separated the light from the darkness, and he named the light day and the darkness night. Now, it's interesting that he didn't abolish the darkness. He just gave it a boundary and a name. Then on the second day, in verses 7 and 8, God separated the ocean from the atmosphere, and he named the new atmosphere heaven or sky. On the third day, in verses 9 and 10, God gathered the oceans together to create dry land, and he named the land earth and the water seas. So God didn't abolish the waters either. He just gave them a boundary and a name. And after those three days, God was done with naming things. He doesn't name anything else during the second three days because he leaves the rest of creation for humankind to name. 
He does separate for one more day. On the fourth day, in verse 14, he uses the sun and the moon to separate the day from the night. But God very deliberately does not name the sun or the moon here. In verse 16, they're just called the greater light and the lesser light. Mm -hmm. So after the third day, God doesn't do any more naming. And after the fourth day, he doesn't do any more separating either. He switches tasks into blessing and commanding. So on the fifth day, God made fish and birds. And verse 22 says, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, which is both a blessing and a command. Mm -hmm. And on the sixth day, he says the same thing to the humans. Verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So over the course of the six days, God switches actions. He switches separating and naming for blessing and commanding. But all the way along, God is evaluating. He's a bit like a building inspector. God assesses his work to see if it's up to code as he goes along. And he decides that, yes, it's good. It's good. So he makes that pronouncement on every day except the second day. And he makes it twice on the third and the sixth days. So you can mark these. Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God saw that it was good. And finally, in verse 31, when everything is finished and God has a man and a woman in his own image to take care of things, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So the days are episodes and each day is done when the work is declared good. And the chapter finishes with a beautiful final chord of very good, complete, finished. So Genesis 1 leaves no doubt that God created the world intentionally. He had a blueprint in mind. He had imagined it and plotted it out down to the very last detail. And how complex and intricate and interconnected it all was. And when God executed his plan in six phases, every one of them went perfect. It was exactly what he wanted. No project on earth has ever gone this well since. (laughs) Um, When we set about building or carving or writing or painting or any other creative work, we have an idea, but then we don't think of everything when we make our plan. We take twice as long in the execution, and the result is always at least a little bit disappointing. Or in my case, very disappointing. (laughs) When has humanity ever built just what the architect intended, on time and within budget? But creation went well. God saw that it was very good. So the world was fashioned by the word of God, blessed by the word of God, commanded by the word of God, and evaluated by the word of God. And one final observation I'd like to make from this text is that there's a special word in it. The Hebrew word bara, which means created. Uh, Taylor mentioned it last week. It means to create out of nothing and is only ever applied to God. In this chapter, three acts of creation are called out for special attention by the use of the word bara. So first in verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. 
then it's not used again until the fifth day in verse 21 when God created the great sea creatures and every bird. And then it's used just one more time in verse 27 when God created humankind in his own image. And that suggests very strongly that these three events, the creation of matter, the creation of life, and the creation of life in God's image, are three moments that stand apart Mm -hmm. because they introduce something entirely new. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are some of the details we can observe in Genesis 1, just a few of them. I'm sure you could find a thousand more. Um, But let's move on now to thinking about what all this might mean, how we should interpret it. I want to notice first that the chapter started with three problems and God effectively solved all three. So in answer to darkness, God made the light. In answer to formlessness, God made boundaries. And in answer to emptiness, God gave diverse and abundant life. And when we notice that, we can notice further that the six days of creation are structured around solving these three problems. The days are in two sets of three. So days one through three solve the problem of formlessness by creating three distinctions, night and day, water and sky, earth and sea, and that gives form. Then days four through six solve the problem of emptiness by filling up those three spaces. So night and day get the moon and the sun, water and sky get the fish and birds, and earth gets the land, animals and humans. Notice that what we might call the negative spaces of darkness and water are also filled on those days. They're not left empty. And when God fills up his spaces, he fills them with multiplicative, diverse abundance. (laughs) So the sun and the moon and a hundred billion stars and swarms of living creatures according to many different kinds that are commanded to go on multiplying. So the end result is a magnificent, beautiful, full, diverse, living earth. There is order instead of chaos. So we need to challenge our view of what we think of when we think of the word order. We might think that order is grey and boring and all the same. But it's not. Order is diverse and abundant and creative and bright and joyful. It's the total opposite of dark, empty chaos. God creates boundaries and limits and distinctions so that his creatures can live, so that they can thrive and feast and be creative and rejoice. Next, I want to affirm that Jesus is the one who did all of this. Our Jesus did all this. It might be obvious, but it's easy to forget. The man that we see stooping down to wash his disciples' feet is the same God who spoke all life into existence. Colossians chapter 1 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. If you want to go back and study that, it's Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16. So Jesus is the word of God, as Taylor said last week. And by that word, the universe was created out of nothing. So we stop here to marvel at just how powerful Jesus is and creative in the artistic sense. 
No one who wrote any part of the Bible knew what we know now about our world. They were awestruck at what the human eye could see, creation on the scale of meters. But little did they know that it's still beautiful and diverse and orderly on the scale of millimeters and micrometers and nanometers. And it's still beautiful and diverse and orderly on the scale of hundreds of kilometers and the scale of light years. It doesn't matter the scale that you're looking at, how big or how small, it's still amazing. And maybe even more amazing than what the human eye can see. So now we know that a tiny grain of sand is actually made of a billion spinning atoms. And it sits among a billion other grains of sand on a spinning planet that spins around other, with other giant planets around a star that itself spins around the Milky Way among a billion stars. And the word of Jesus set all of that moving. Yes. And that's what he calls the least of his works. How awesome is our God? Is there anything our Lord can't do? So that brings us to the question that's often asked of this chapter. Did God really create the world in only six days? And is it important for Christians to believe that he did? And that's a huge subject, but I have just a few brief thoughts. Um, First, I think it's important that we believe that he could have. That he could have. He does not lack the power. And he didn't even need six days. The great St. Augustine was convinced that God could have made the world in just one day. In an instant. Six days was much longer than he needed. And surely Augustine's right about that. So maybe we need to question whether our view of God is big enough. There is nothing that God can't do. If he's able to create a skeptic, then he's also able to do anything that skeptic might scorn. (laughs) Second, it's important that we trust God's word, all of it. Lean on what it says and not be ashamed of it, because the very words that caused creation are written in the Bible for our recreation. And Jesus was explicit that these particular words were spoken by God. Because when the Pharisees asked him a question about marriage in Matthew 19, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's quoting from Genesis 1.27. And Jesus goes on, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he says, God joined them by his word, by these words in Genesis 1. So I reject that these words in Genesis 1 had any kind of human origin. They're to be trusted as God's word. But does that mean that we're to take them literally as scientifically and historically true? And I think not necessarily. God's word is literally and historically true when it says it is. And I can't make a watertight case here that it says it is. Because what does history mean before there's a human to witness it? And what is a day before there's a sun to define it? Also, according to the sequence of Genesis 1, the earth itself and all the water in it existed before the six days. So at least some part of the earth is older than that. Many theologians who love the Lord and trust the Bible have made the case that Genesis 1 is not literal history. 
They say that the six days are not a chronological sequence, but a logical sequence, written to show the meaning of the creation, not the method, the purpose, and not the process. So God's own description of his work as the artist is not at odds with the prevailing scientific description as the art critic, which is trying to answer a different set of questions. So, is it important for Christians to believe in a literal six days? I think no. There are good reasons for either view. So when I was a teenager full of angst, I went to my pastor and I asked him if he believed in a young earth and his answer was, I really don't think that it matters. And I didn't believe him then, but I've come to believe him now. But I will speak for myself and say that I do personally lean toward believing that the earth is only around 6,000 years old and was created by God in six 24-hour days. And I've come to believe that not by ignoring what scientists say, but by deeply reading and engaging with them. And I just don't find the case for 4.6 billion years or gradual evolution persuasive. So I wouldn't say that a literal six days is biblically necessary, but I do find it both biblically and scientifically likely. And there isn't time now to say anything more about that, but if any of you are interested and want to chat in coffee hour, I'd really love to talk about it. <laughs> um, I'll take a little place at the table in there and get coffee, and if you want to come talk to me, you can. Um, for now, I want to bring us back to what Genesis really wants to talk about, and that's the supreme power and glory of God. And that's the message I hope we can all take home from this, that our God is awesome. Hebrew scholar Alan Ross says that if the creation around us displays the glory of God, how much more the account of the origin of that creation in Genesis? From beginning to end, the emphasis in this passage is on God's sovereign majesty. So as we take this word home today, how might we apply it to our own lives? And first I've got to ask, how is our worship doing? How's our worship doing? Do we elevate Jesus in our minds and our hearts as the mighty word of God who imagined and made all things? And do we pour out worship to him? Or have we become distracted by some of the things that he made? We know that over the centuries, people have worshipped many, many of the things that God made. They've worshipped the sun and the moon. They've worshipped the images of animals and birds and reptiles. They've worshipped trees and gold and men and women and angels, all things God made. And maybe we've fallen into doing that ourselves. Because the things God made are awesome. But their maker is immeasurably more awesome. And our worship belongs to him alone. So, when we enjoy anything, do we give God thanks for making it? When we are amazed by anything, are we practiced in directing our wonder up to heaven? And if we've lost our sense of thanksgiving or wonder, maybe it's because we've lost contact with the marvelous world Jesus made. We don't give ourselves any time to look at it or study it. We can learn a good lesson from the scientists on this one, because they undertake a glorious task. The orderly and diverse creation of Genesis 1 is just begging to be studied, and we still haven't seen all of it. It seems like there's nothing God made that's so boring that someone hasn't devoted their whole life to studying that thing. So imagine the most boring thing you can think of, maybe a lump of limestone. 
And you'll find that somebody has spent their whole life studying that. And it's been a rewarding life of research. And these scientists, they're really onto something. So if you're feeling depressed or thankless or uninspired by the world, it's probably because you spend too many hours in the artificial world of men and too few admiring the natural wonders of God. So get outside, or at least get yourself a subscription to a science magazine. Um, and finally, this chapter speaks to those of us who need more order in our lives, more order in our bodies and our minds, our hearts and our souls. And what we see is that Jesus can do it. In our gospel lesson, the centurion said, just speak the word and he's going to be healed. And Jesus commended him for his faith. Jesus' words created the universe. They turned chaos into cosmos. And they can set us in order too, can't they? Mm -hmm. So let's ask him to do it. Ask him with faith that he can do a good work in us. And also let's listen to him and the instructions he gives us. Because so many of the words he's given us in scripture are given for this very reason. To set us in order. To give us the boundaries we need, the life-giving limits, to rearrange our priorities and redirect the affections of our hearts. It's all about turning cold, lonely, dead chaos into lively, colourful, abundant order. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So if you detect Jesus trying to change you, trying to transform you, then let him. Let him do what he wants to do. Don't fight him. The creation that obeys his voice is all the happier for it. And we will be too. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Amen.